Listeners on CJTR Community Radio at 91.3 FM and over the internet at cjtr.ca. We can also be heard on SaskTel Max at channel 806 and Access Communications Digital Service at channel 700. Wherever you are, welcome to Human Rights Radio, hosted weekly by Amnesty International volunteers. Our theme song is titled 30 Words, The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, written and performed by R.E.M. and a collection of musicians from around the world. I'm Jim Hutchings, and with me is my special guest, Tyler Gray. Communications, Advocacy, and Projects Coordinator, I think is kind of your title there, is it not? That is the working at, title. At, <laughs> at Carmichael Outreach in Regina. I, and uh, I was looking back in my records and... Uh, uh, I wasn't sure how long it had been since you were... Do you have any idea when it was you were here last? Oh, it must be a little over a year for sure. For it, sure. More like two years. More like two. It's yeah. been too long, man. It's been too long. <laughs> March 14th of 2014. There you go. Yeah. Crazy. And at that time, we were talking about housing. Absolutely. Yeah. Could so, still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But just uh, for the for the people... I, mean, I think it would be hard to imagine anybody in Regina that doesn't know what Carmichael is. Mm-hmm. I think we should fill them in and give us a brief th- thumbnail sketch of uh, what Carmichael is and how it came to be. Sure. Uh, so we'll start with the the history, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, we birthed out of what was Carmichael United Church in Regina here. Uh, one of the lay ministers there, George Palmer, and a few volunteers had kind of recognized that there was a, a lot of people that were kind of in that uh, Heritage Broders Annex area neighborhood that were really in need of, of clothing. And so they had started collected clothing. 
and uh, did a clothing drop off for a few years. And about ten years into the thing, it kind of morphed into a, more of a standalone nonprofit that has eventually become a non-religious organization that provides a combination of emergency services uh, to people experiencing homelessness, as well as some long-term supports to help break the cycles of, of poverty and homelessness in our community. And that's the long and the short of it. That's the shortest version of it I've ever given, for sure. <laughs> so, what do you uh, what do you find? Are they, like, has anything changed in terms of focus uh, from the time things started and uh, where you are now? Um, I mean, I can for sure speak for the three years that I've been there. I mean, we've we've seen, I think, some change in the sense of of how we approach things that we're trying to deal with in our community but i would say that most of our focus has kind of remained the same i think that you know despite an increase in in vacancy rates um you know availability hasn't led to accessibility um so you know despite the 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 higher vacancy rate in our community the vast majority of of the families and individuals that we work with on a day-to-day basis still have tremendous difficulty accessing housing um, still find themselves in a scenario where uh, they're paying a substantial amount of what is their income uh, towards that housing. And, and so it creates need for uh, the other services that we provide, like that food program and, and our clothing and household items boutique. So um, I would say our focus is, is maybe a little bit more on like long-term evidence, mm-hmm. you know, based and backed practices that are going to, to help individuals and families kind of overcome some of those challenges. Mm-hmm. But in the sense of... Uh, what we are focused on in our community those those things have largely stayed the same for the last three years do you think there's uh, been an increase or a decrease in the uh, the need for your services well i mean if we're going on raw numbers uh it would be increase i mean when i first started we were at thirty-seven thousand meals a year um our last month was six thousand nine hundred plus um, we'll probably hit close to 70,000 meals served this year. So, I mean, over uh, the three-year period that I've worked there, we're, we're at, a, you know, a 200% increase. So the reality of it is is that some of that is probably need that we could not meet three years ago that we're able to meet today. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it does show you is I think sometimes the, the numbers that we have in our brains of what need might actually be aren't actually the full scope of need. Um, there's a substantial number of people in our community. Uh, single parent families, newcomers to Canada, seniors on fixed incomes, people facing challenges of mental illness and addictions. Uh, you know, poverty uh, does not discriminate mm-hmm. uh, based on demographic, and neither does homelessness. So, you know, I think what we're finding is is that the need has probably always been there. Mm-hmm. But I think that maybe as we're able to meet those needs, uh, more people are kind of coming out of the the shadows into right. the, into the light, so that we're able to see how how great the need is in our community. Yes. Um and I think too that as as inflation erodes purchasing power and uh, wages don't go up with, at the same rate as inflation, um, there's probably uh, a large number of families that are sort of teetering on the brink. Mm-hmm. They're surviving on the wages that they're getting, but costs keep going up, and. Um, probably maybe one paycheck away kind of thing from being homeless. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think, how, how many people do you see that are close to that? Uh, I mean, there would be a lot. I mean, I think if you think about life, I mean, I think one of the things that I've always kind of said when we talk about, you know, like issues of economics is, is I can understand what people tell me about their experiences um, in the sense of how they explain it. I can mentally process it, but in the sense of actually living that experience, you know, I've just no grid. I've got no grid for it. But 
um, you know, there was just some numbers that came out recently. Uh, I can't remember what the exact percentage was, but it was a substantial percentage of people in Saskatchewan living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about, you know, if if I was to go home today and my house was to not be standing from some, you know, ill-fated event, sure. there would probably be six to six to eight or nine different people I could phone where we'd be able to go and lay our heads at night, sure. sort out whatever we needed to sort out and be able to move on with our lives. Um, and the reality of it is, is, I think even more than the economics of it is, is people that are in those spaces where it's check to check to check, mm-hmm. if there isn't a support network that's around them to help them when things kind of fall apart, um, those are the people that end up coming through our doors on a day-to-day basis to right. see us. It's the it's the mom and kids fleeing, you know, domestic violence or their partner leaves or whatever it is, um, you know, in those scenarios where now there's there's no income to pay the rent um you're behind on rent you're getting evicted and how do you how do you deal with those things how do you you go from having a certain amount of finances that you could bank on to uh being in a spot where you know you've got to deal with childcare for four kids and you also have to be the sole provider of income and and that takes having support for people in our community and and those are some of the scenarios that we would see on a day-to-day basis so uh, i i don't know the exact numbers Mm -hmm. i mean if i was just to rely on that article I, i feel like it was between you know 30 to 50 percent of people were living check to check which is a substantial number in our community so uh the reality of it is is that if the support networks aren't there for that percentage of people um you know you're one you're one tragic event away from needing to access services from a place like carmichael outreach or another organization that's similar to us theoretically theoretically you would hope that uh, government provided social services Mm -hmm. should be able to meet some needs there Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering what what percentage of people's needs, like a situation, for example, we were just talking about where mm-hmm. all of a sudden you lost your job for whatever reason. Maybe the company's gone under or they've restructured or whatever reason it is, you've lost your income mm-hmm. and now you can't pay for rent, for food, mm-hmm. all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, what, sort of, what sort of assistance is in place from the government? Well, I mean, there's your your basic social assistance that people can access, right? Um, but it's all based on different categorizations, right? So, I mean, if somebody walks through the door and, and they're assessed as an employable person, uh, even if they're having difficulty finding employment, the amount of resources they're able to access is, is substantially lower uh, than somebody who would be deemed as unemployable. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do know is that even the rates for unemployable people uh, end up being far below the poverty line. So I think... What I would say based on assistance is I think that like there's the groundwork for there to be some well-intentioned things in place for people. But I think that what ends up happening in a lot of these circumstances is that <clears throat> you end up um, trying so hard to make sure that you don't create dependency within the system that we don't actually provide support with that same system either. Um, you know, So rather than making sure that we're just helping people in spots where they need help and helping them to make sure that they have what they need to be able to to move forward and, and go and attack trying to get a job in the workforce, uh, a lot of times what we do is we just create these bare-bones support mechanisms uh, that don't really meet basic needs, um, and it puts people in a really tough spot. You know, do you lean mm-hmm. on having, you know, something rather than nothing at all, um, or, you know, how do you how do you mitigate those, those circumstances? And, and going back to that example of what we were just talking about, you know, like I've had people as the housing support coordinator during my time in that role who would come through the door and they would have two or three children um, and so they would get a certain amount of money because they had those children and they wanted to work. Uh, They wanted to be able to go out and get a full-time job but going and getting a full-time job meant transportation costs, it meant childcare costs, it meant all these different things and 
it, by the time you added in the costs mm-hmm. and you factored in clawback of what that assistance you know could provide for somebody, it was actually less beneficial financially for somebody to go to work, regardless of how terrible the rate that they were receiving was. So you'd have this family of three people that's looking to live off of thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars because even going and making minimum wage when you factored in the cost, they were going to have less at the end of the day. And so what you have to do is I think you have to look at those those assistance schemes and structures and say the intention might be to provide, you know, the support that people need to get out of out of the cycles of poverty and, and homelessness. But the manifestations of it are showing that uh, you know, whether it's clawback or whether it's the, the rate being as low as it is, um, is creating scenarios f- for people where um, despite their desire to be independent and autonomous, functioning economic members of our society, it is actually harder for them to do that than it is to sit on a social assistance rate simply because of the fact that the minute that they work, they're going to lose um, you know, whatever assistance that they have that's helping them be able to transition into the workforce. So I think it's the abruptness of the systems um, that really leads to some of the problems for people as they're trying to figure out how to navigate the space of how do I re-engage with the workforce as I'm rebuilding my life from you know, a 10-year experience of homelessness or as a single parent who's just lost a partner or I've just lost my job, how do I navigate those scenarios? And the reality of it is, is that the complexity of those circumstances is not reflected in the in the simplicity of the system if if that makes any sense sure it strikes me that uh, within social services itself you got some pretty bright people mm-hmm. and what you've just described to me uh, it makes perfect sense me sitting here listening to you mm-hmm. so it's got to make perfect sense to these social services people and the only answer to the disparity that we're describing has got to be political. Would that be fair? I think political will's a huge part of it, and then I think that there's there's elements of it that are that are cultural too. I mean, you know, there's there's a reality that we see on a day to day basis. You know, I, I don't want to create victimization for the people that we work with on a day to day basis because there's lots of people we work with who have a tremendous amount of resilience and, and pride. So I certainly don't want to speak an experience of victimization, but I think that there's this perspective that exists in our community where if you're accessing social assistance it's because you're lazy mm-hmm. um, or if you're if you're you know uh, on welfare you're you know just riding the pokey money or there's some element of you that's deviant or fraudulent almost just by perception mm-hmm. uh, when it's not in reality the case and so I think it is a combination of a few different things I think um, you know we have the awareness as as organizations and i and i would say too like as our municipal provincial and federal governments we have the awareness of of what these circumstances look like for people and it demands greater action uh, so it demands political will for sure but i think uh, you know there's also a, a demand for greater awareness amongst members of our own community uh, you know, we made an agreement, uh, essentially, in some ways, when we moved to a place like Regina and said, we're going to share these geographical borders, that we were going to put money towards maintaining our infrastructure, uh, to maintaining our schools, to, you know, paying for, you know, our fire department, our police service, all these different things. And I think that a natural extension of that in my brain is, is that we've also made an agreement that as a community that we can accomplish a lot of things better together. Uh, so, I mean, I would look at the, the social assistance, you know, paradox and paradigms that we see on a day-to-day basis, and I would say it demands political will from our political leaders, but it demands community awareness and community action from each of us as citizens, too. Um, you know, and, and that, that, I think, is part and parcel. Those are two things that are married together, political will and mm-hmm. community awareness and community action. Yeah, I suppose 
as our political leaders are gauging what's out there in terms of mm-hmm. uh, of what people want to see done, mm-hmm. then uh, that's that's how they're going to approach the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think like that's. Uh, <laughs> we could have a conversation about politics for probably an hour in and of itself, but I think that you know I look at the political system and, and uh, it's not a criticism necessarily of, of the people that are a part of it, but I think what I would say is like as a system as a whole, just observing it as a as a voting member of the public, it would seem as though we've transitioned away from good governance and implementing things that are actually backed by evidence mm-hmm. um, at all levels of government, and we've moved in a direction of. Um, making sure that there's a win on the other side of of that political engagement whatever it looks like and so um it's not to let our political leaders off the hook i think that Mm -hmm. i would hope that we we have leaders in our communities that hold themselves to a higher standard than that um but i think that it's also a bit of the system that we've created for the for the political uh, people that exist in our community and in our provinces that we've created these things where you know if somebody is a proponent of a certain issue mm-hmm. uh, there's major public backlash for it right. and, and so you look at that stuff and just go you know uh, the raging masses mm-hmm. <laughs> seem to somewhat drive the narratives of of how we address things in our community and specifically around poverty and homelessness i think that most of that right. raging masses perspective is relatively uninformed yeah, so you could probably have a, a reasonably intelligent conversation with a politician and talk about something like housing first. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all know intellectually mm-hmm. that you're going to save money yeah. with a housing first program. Yeah, And he knows that and he accepts that, doesn't mm-hmm. argue that, but uh, it's difficult for him maybe to sell to his constituents. That might be part of it. And I think the other part of it is, too, is like some of this stuff is long term, um, you know. And so when you think about the, the way that things play out, I, I mean, this is just more a statement. It's not a, I guess, a complicit agreement with it. But, you know, we operate in four year terms. And the reality of it is, is that your your first batch of people who are transitioning out of 15 to 20 years of homelessness are just going to be producing those cost savings at the tail end of that four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's not a reason to not invest in it. Um, you know, I'm certainly not saying that it's it's a it's an excuse, but it is one of those things where you look at it and you just go, I think it, it's uh, it's decisions are made in the sense of like what has maximum impact in a short period of time. Um, whereas something like housing first is is a very long term thing. The benefits are they're clear long term. Mm-hmm. You're breaking, you know, generational cyclical patterns of homelessness, and you know the the ramifications of that two, three, four generations down the road are, are substantial both socially and economically. Um, but the the short term of it is is that you're investing heavily in resources and supports that helped people to be able to make those transitions, uh, be able to you know develop coping mechanisms uh, that for for mental illness get diagnoses we see that all the time you know housing first the huge thing with housing first is you've got a, a tremendous amount of undiagnosed mental illness mm-hmm. um, so you know somebody's been using substances self-medicating a mm-hmm. mental illness and so I mean a huge portion of it is getting proper diagnoses getting proper treatments in place for people that they actually have access to um, and when you do that it is amazing how much things turn quickly for people I was just going to ask you about that uh, sort of breaking point or turning point there um what percentage of people do you think that uh you're you're helping who have uh, maybe addictions issues or mental health issues mm-hmm. uh, compared to people who are just they've uh run out of financial luck whatever they've 
They've opted not to, or maybe they're unable to, for whatever reason, go to school and, and get a saleable skill. Yeah. So they're working at minimum wage jobs, and minimum wage has not kept pace with cost of living. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering where the, the, the saw-off is there. Sure. So we would have like a, like a core group of people that uh, we see each day. Um, most of the folks that you're talking about that are kind of in the middle of, of working minimum wage jobs, uh, quicker access for mm-hmm. our services. They'll probably pop in and, and use the boutique, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to get some free clothing or to, you know, uh, maybe get pots and pans in their home or, or whatever it is, uh, or access the food program. Um, we have a pretty regular, consistent group. Um, it kind of flexes. It's very transient population mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan. Just the the climate's so harsh, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I would say that during the summers we'd probably be closer to like a hundred people that we're working with that would kind of, um, you know, fit the descrim- the description of like you know, uh, co-occurring diagnoses mm-hmm. of, of mental illness and addictions. Um, and you know, in the winters you'd be probably more between that sixty-five to seventy-five range. Um, if if I was to evaluate how many are we helping, um, you know, we're pretty new to some of these more long-term, you know, supports that we've implemented with, with housing. Um, but there's one story that's kind of really stood out to me. Uh, we started working with an individual that was using non-beverage alcohol on, mm-hmm. on a regular, regular basis. And um, again, working with the individual got them into housing. And over a period of time, you know, this person was... Um, you know, slowly reducing the usage of this non-beverage alcohol and has now come to the place of saying, you know, I don't want to drink anymore. And so you look at this stuff and you just go like, people want good things for their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is not, you will never be able to convince me that there's a person that wakes up and, and says on a given day, I'm really excited that I'm, you know, addicted to mm-hmm. alcohol or I, I'm so excited that I'm addicted to, you know, cocaine or, or whatever it is, the substance that somebody's using. It, it's connected to trauma and it's connected to a lack of support and it's connected to um, a real deterioration of the things around somebody that helps them be able to navigate difficult things and, and obstacles that they come up against in their life. And as we build that community, um, people have success. I was reading an interesting piece a little while ago about uh, soldiers during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently during the Vietnam War in Vietnam, there was a very large percentage of soldiers there who were using using heroin mm-hmm. on a regular, like a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And uh, the powers that be were really concerned that these soldiers would come back all addicted to heroin. What were they going to do with all these addicts? <laughs> and the reality was, when you took the soldiers out of that extremely stressful environment and they came home to their families... Mm-hmm. They had no desire to do heroin anymore. They, mm-hmm. the majority of them, uh, they just quit. Done. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it just makes you think. Well, if if you take the stress out of people's lives, mm-hmm. uh, that could solve a lot of addictions problems, or at least you'd be well on your way to uh, to a solution. Absolutely. And I think then there's the other piece of that conversation too. That that that's kind of the the part that we kind of always talk about. You know, for the folks that we work with, you know, on a day to day basis. Uh, their, their substance use is largely considered a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's substance use or substance abuse. Um, and yet we seem to be okay with, as a culture, um, people who wouldn't be poor mm-hmm. <laughs> and who wouldn't be homeless sure. and who wouldn't be Aboriginal right. um, going out and getting absolutely roasted at a bar and having their friends take them home. Yeah. Um, the behaviors are exactly the same. Sure. Uh, there's There's... 100% no difference between those two experiences other than the fact that it's 
somebody who is not have a home does not have friends take them there um and so the, the the end part of that experience looks different and so you know there's this reality of people are not looking to use substances and be addicted in and that's why they're homeless is because they just don't care right but then the flip side of it as well is is we need to really head on address in in our community some of the things that we've created these misnomers of you know well you know if you're if you're homeless and you're drinking you know like it's it's a different it's a different scenario than it is if if you're going out to the bar on a friday night with your buddies and getting so trashed that you have to get carried to the cab that's going to take you home and you don't remember anything about your friday night right. there's no difference other than money mm-hmm. uh and privilege right. and and so the reality of it is is that we need to we need to address those things at, at multiple levels in order to be able to help people navigate through those spaces right right yeah, when you get specific about it, alcohol addiction is alcohol addiction. Hundred percent. Yeah, and the physical thing is the same, and it's a difference of privilege, sure. really, more than anything else. Yeah, and and a network, really, like a support group of people that are going to help you be able to navigate those those scenarios and be able to end up in a in a better space than falling asleep beside a dumpster in a back alley. Right. Um, right. So, and in the wintertime, freezing to death. One hundred percent. Yeah. On that happy note, we've come to the bottom of our hour, and uh, so we're going to take a break, and uh, then we'll play some music. Uh, you've you've picked some music for us. Absolutely, I've and, got a good little song coming up here. Okay, so uh, we'll do the break first here, then we'll we'll come back and and we'll play some music. Uh, this is Human Rights Radio, and uh, I'm Jim Hutchings here with uh, Tyler Gray from uh, the Carmi- Carmichael Outreach. Yeah.
apologize for my miscue there at the very beginning. I didn't tell the computer to stop playing. So anyway, I thought, gee, that sounds great, but that's not what we want to hear. Ah, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. So what were we listening to there, Tom? Uh, we were listening to a little Matt Mays uh, Indio from the album Coyote. Awesome. Awesome. I'm just, uh, you know, it comes to that music. I'm, I'm, I'm well, I'm an older person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so. hopefully that harkened back to the days of early rock and roll before it was all diluted. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> anyway, we're back. This is Human Rights Radio, and I'm Jim Hutchings, and talking with uh, Tyler Gray, who is from uh, Carmichael Outreach. And we've been talking about various things that uh, Carlisle is involved in uh, with helping uh, people who need help. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was how the provincial government's uh, budget that that came down mm-hmm. they they had their election without a budget mm-hmm. saying no oh, it's going to be tough but we we can't tell you here how bad it's going to be well mm-hmm. we found out how bad it was going to be in mm-hmm. june i think mm-hmm. so how bad was it for carmichael and the people that it's trying to support yeah well i mean for us as an organization uh, not much changed um we didn't lose any of the funds that we had, uh, which cover a couple of our housing support positions. Um, so from that perspective, we were still very much okay. We were able to keep the staff team in the building to keep providing the support that we'd been providing to people um, in the sense of uh, what it meant for the the people that we're working with on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it's ultimately what led to uh, the rather contentious and heated conversations around the assured income for disabilities cuts that kind of came down and then weren't on the table anymore. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the reality of it is, is if you are to take seriously uh, the messaging that's coming from the province, um, I would say that probably next year is the year that we're really going to be looking at, um, you know, when you hear buzzwords like transformational change, uh, I think those will be the that'll be the year that we'll start to see some some real hard choices uh, around finances and what that looks like for for people that we're working with and for us as an organization. So, um, just curious, what what percentage of your budget would come from the provincial government? We try to stay away from government funding uh, okay. for a couple different reasons. Uh, number one, it it's 
uh, a tricky game to get into. Uh, it's not very consistent. And that's not a criticism. It's just the reality. Um, and and two, it, it's something that we just felt like would limit our ability to speak to issues that we felt we really needed to speak to in our community. Um, that being said, the province funds uh, two-fifths of our housing support program uh, at a total clip of $85,000 a year, uh, which is just a tiny bit over 10% of our operating mm-hmm. budget on a yearly wow. basis. Yeah, I was just going to say um, $85,000 doesn't seem like very much money. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's not a huge amount. Um, I, there's a bit of us that, that we would pride ourselves on being able to make dollars go a long way. I think that that efficiency is something that we strive for, but it certainly would be nice to be resourced a, a little bit more specifically in that housing support program to really be able to tackle a couple different things. We'd really like to be able to get to the space of being able to provide around-the-clock support 24 hours a day for the folks that we're working with who have been assessed as having that level of need. Mm-hmm. And we'd really like to crank open the door on a permanent supportive housing project, which would uh, basically take you know 20 folks who've been assessed as having a level of need that they wouldn't be able to live independently in market housing and put them in a space where there's staff on site 24 hours a day. Um, so those are two things that we've been actively pushing towards and working towards that it would be nice to see some resources there but uh as it is right now we're doing all right yeah right well that's good that's good and i can see your point Mm -hmm. um and it's nice to know that uh you have that kind of level of support from the community for your work absolutely and uh so that that is really uh really good news um and and you make a good point too about uh the the housing i think one of the things that the uh, government said was uh, there wasn't going to be as much need uh, in in the housing department because there was more housing on the market. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's great mm-hmm. if you can afford the rent. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a trick. That's a challenge, right? Is I mean, if you think about... Um you know what people do with property acquisition is it's largely an, an economic generator for mm-hmm. for folks right and that's that's a fine thing but uh if you sign your lease and your mortgage at a certain rate you're probably not going to rent below that no matter how much is on the market unless you're taking such a substantial loss that it's less of a loss to lose money uh, so until we get to that scenario where uh the mortgages that people have signed are just they need somebody in the building until uh, rather than having nobody there and not getting anything, mm-hmm. um, you know the rates are going to stay the same. You know that we've seen that as as the vacancy rates have increased, uh, it has not led to a decrease in rental rates. Our rental rates have continued to increase on the average two bedrooms through the CMHC statistics that come out on a year by year basis. There, so um, you know the reality of it is is that I think maybe those two things aren't necessarily uh, directly correlated as much as we'd like to convince ourselves that they are. Right, right. I was just thinking. Uh, I know. For what I'm paying for rent for a one-bedroom apartment mm-hmm. in downtown Regina, mm-hmm. uh, I used to pay less than that for a mortgage mm-hmm. for a thousand square foot house. Yeah, well, I mean, even when I first rented in Regina in 2008, uh, 2007, when I moved here, we had a three-bedroom home that we were renting for $785, um, and it was not in uh, poor condition or disrepair or in a very questionable neighborhood we were in old, old lakeview mm-hmm. uh so i mean you know now when we're sitting down with somebody and you're trying to make a budget for me you're saying you know what do you want and for a place and they're saying i just want to have a one-bedroom apartment and you look at the listings and the average price is between 825 and 875 dollars and you just think good grief you know like how do you how do you make that work i mean mm-hmm. we had we had three four five guys that lived in that house right to get the rate to what was workable for us uh as young guys making minimum wage 
dollars. So the reality of it is, is that uh, we're in a very untenable position for a lot of folks in our community trying to find ways to pay for housing. Right, right. Um, what sort of role do uh, uh, housing coordinators at uh, Carmichael play? And I, I imagine you're going to be kind of refereeing or or negotiating for clients when they're trying to get into some housing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find difficulty with some landlords not wanting, like if somebody is a client of Carmichael, mm-hmm. um, are they going to have trouble finding housing? Oh, yeah. Uh, we've been trending in a, a direction that has just been uh, quite troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a few times, uh, maybe a, about a year and a half ago, two years, I guess, closer to two years, uh, when I was at the tail end of, of being in the housing support position that I was in, where we would actually see listings that would overtly state um, no Indians allowed. Um, and I mean, you just like, I mean, number one, like just the, the terminology is offensive, right? Uh, let alone, uh, you know, when you're discriminating on what somebody can access for housing. And, you know, you would run into scenarios where there was actually very little that we could do. Uh, we were trying to compile that information and actually file a human rights complaint, but because it was private property, mm-hmm. uh, we were very limited in what we were able to, to do for recourse. Um, and I would say that, you know, that that's become a little bit more of a soft uh the soft level of discrimination and it might less be about um you know certain particular things uh ethnicity uh, and it would be a little bit more around social social assistance at this point that's the at least that's what we get told on a regular mm-hmm. basis is we don't rent people on social assistance and there's a couple of things that play into that um you know the letter of guarantee just has not worked mm-hmm. um you know landlords often find themselves trying to fight to get to what should have been a damage deposit if somebody does leave early and that taints the waters for everybody mm-hmm. um and that's just a simple reality of of the matter is is a landlord doesn't want to take a loss on something that the government's going to try and pull out from underneath their feet when they need to claim it so right um it's tricky it's hard mm-hmm. to it's hard to access housing and it's hard to access housing that works in a budget and meets basic safety and you know uh, we end up in a lot of scenarios going to viewings with people and uh, you know having people choose to live in places that uh, it's not the greatest choice to live there but they don't really have another option mm-hmm. so you know you see lots of roaches and bed bugs and um, you know substandard housing and you know issues with infrastructure but they're things that uh, people have to to choose you know do I want to have nothing or do I want to at least have a roof over my head um, it's a very unfortunate set of decisions that people mm-hmm. have to make mm-hmm. Are you able to uh, follow up on housing situations and uh, to avoid the sort of destructive situations that landlords uh, will cite when they mm-hmm. when they say, "Well, I'm not going to rent to those people anymore." Mm-hmm. We're definitely working on it. Um, you know, I mean, there there was a period of time there where it was just so many people coming through the door on a day to day basis that you just help them get a place and kind of hope that it worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a substantial number of times where it didn't. So we started to kind of change and flex what that looked like. So we actually have started to develop actually a team. We've up to got three people now in our mm-hmm. in our program that go around to people's homes, help them keep the place tidy, make sure their rent's paid on time, right. you know, mediate any landlord tenant issues so that you know you don't have escalation mm-hmm. uh, that leads to you know such a relationship dis 
you know, damaged that it, it's unrepairable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've really worked to kind of open some of those doors and those scenarios. I mean, the reality of it is, is that housing first is, is largely uh, focused on that, right? Mm-hmm. So as we've even worked to implement it at a community level in Regina, um, ourselves, Phoenix Residential Society, the YWCA, Street Culture, um, have kind of come along to try and you know, hit various demographics in our city, you know, whether that's women and children, whether that's mm-hmm. youth, whether that's, you know, mental, mental wellness, mental health. Um, and we're trying to implement that stuff, but it's still so under-resourced mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that you're, you're trying to, um, I don't know, it's a little bit like bailing water out of your sinking boat with a bucket, right? Yeah, you're trying yeah. to find a way to, to, to do what you can for as long as you can, but there's still a knowledge that we we flat out need more financial investment to mm-hmm. create the support systems that people need to be successful. So the the reality of it is, is there's a group of us that are doing what we can, mm-hmm. uh, but until there's some buy-in um, from the province in the sense of backing it with dollars, we're limited in the reach that we have, mm-hmm. and uh, we're limited in the impact that we can have with Housing First. So, right. um we're kind of in this weird little spot where mm-hmm. specifically here in Regina, uh, we're, we're behind almost everywhere else in the country, um, in, in our plans to end homelessness in the developed infrastructure for ending homelessness. Um, and the reality of it is, is, you know, there still is kind of this perspective of wait and see here mm-hmm. that despite the fact that it's worked everywhere else in North America, right, right, <laughs> we sure. might be the one place yep. where housing first falls flat. And so there's been such a slow uptake in, in support specifically in that financial area where really the, the pot of money is $2.2 million from the federal government and no money from anywhere else. Right. And so we need our city and we need our province to come on board, uh, the number is not huge. I mean, we're talking, uh, we're talking between probably six and seven million dollars annually um, here. And if you put it in the perspective of some first aid training that uh, we were at recently, where one of the guys was saying that the top seventeen ambulatory users in Regina alone cost one point seven million dollars last year, right, the right. savings are there. Uh, it's just a matter of of putting the money to it so that we can make sure that people's lives are better. <laughs> just just to explain that a little more clearly, sure. You're, the the top you said seven, Ambu- top seventeen. Top seventeen. Yeah. We're talking about we're talking about people who are homeless. Yeah. They're being picked up maybe by police, maybe by ambulance, whatever. They end up in emergency. They're getting emergency care. Yeah. That that type of thing. Well, that was just ambulance rides. Just ambulance rides. So it's literally okay. just just the the top seventeen users for ambulatory services that are also experiencing homelessness. Right. Cost the health region. One point seven million dollars last year right. was what was was the number that we were told by the paramedic who was delivering sure. the first aid training. And we're just talking seventeen people. Yeah, and and just one service. So we're not talking about um, you know we've got circumstances that are existing in our community. We're working with a guy right now that um, ended up having forty five different calls because the guy doesn't have a place to go at night. It literally mm-hmm. is that simple. It, right. And saying so you look at that stuff and you just go the the resources, the time, uh, the citations, the court costs of somebody okay. getting all these. Citations Citations for being in a public place that they shouldn't be at a particular hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just look at it and you just go, I mean, we've, we've got to find a way mm-hmm. to be more humane as, as a group of people in the way that we interact and the way that we, we treat each other. I mean, we've got human beings in our community that are experiencing things that we would not subject our pets to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that I'm anti-pet, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. I do look at it and go, I just feel like, I mean, we have to value human life. Uh, we have to value human life to a, to a far greater degree than, than what we're showing in some of these circumstances. I have to think as I'm having this conversation with you here, 
that a large part of the problem is people becoming aware of the problem, you know, mm-hmm. uh, knowing what the details are, um, and and paying attention and empathizing and, mm-hmm. and understanding that sure. these are human lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, just just getting to know somebody. I mean, mm-hmm. like a generic experience. I mean, I'm as bad as anybody at that. I mean, I can make assumptions about people all the time, right? And it might not even be in the context of, of poverty and homelessness, but we do that as people. We make assumptions. So you see something and you assume that it's this way and mm-hmm. it makes you upset. And so I don't like this person now because I've assumed this thing. And then you find out that it wasn't true or you find out some greater backstory and then you kind of feel bad because you're like, I judge this person and I judge them really unfairly. Mm-hmm. Um and it's no different for people that we know that we work with on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I would just challenge people who have this perspective that that homelessness is about laziness or people don't care or just a bunch of drug addicts or you know you, you know whatever it is. And you just look at you, you have no idea what people have experienced uh, until you sit down and and tangibly read through the experiences that people had in residential schools, or or somebody tells you about. Uh, the abuses they experience as a child or when people that you work with in your housing program start to experience sobriety and, and come to you and say, you know, I went to bed last night and remembered every time that this negative thing happened in my life where I saw, you know, these haunting images, these trauma, you know, things that have occurred in their in their past history all throughout the evening and the night. Mm-hmm. You look at that stuff and you go, I'm not saying that you know, you just are like, okay, well, whatever happens, happens. But you look at it and you go like, yeah, I mean, I can understand why people drink to forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we look at that stuff and it's like, it, it's, it's about empathy, but at a broader level, it's about just, just know people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the more that we keep ourselves separated, the more that you view your community through a certain lens. But when you get to experience life with people and you get to know people on a, on a basis of, of friend to friend relationships and not just, I'm here to support you or here to help you. And there's this, still this power dynamic that exists. Mm-hmm. You come to to see your city a lot differently and and realize that not everybody who sits in a bus stop is waiting for a bus <laughs> um you know not everybody who's in the park is there to just enjoy the park i mean they are but it's also because there's nowhere else for some people to go mm-hmm. and so i mean it, it challenges you on a day-to-day basis once you're aware uh you can't shut the light off once you've turned it on mm-hmm. and, and once you're aware of that it motivates you to to be able to bring about positive change for people in your community that are suffering on a day-to-day basis yeah i mean just well you're talking about that and thinking winter's coming mm-hmm. and now where do they get warm yeah well i mean th- that's that's a good question um you know i think one of the things that we've if you've followed any of our media that we've had this past year one of the things you know that we've been pretty outspoken on has been that trespass to property act um and it's it's exactly the counter narrative to what we've been talking about for the last you know 35 40 minutes it's it's the exact opposite it's let's restrict the areas that people in our community go um that could be problematic mm-hmm. because it's inconvenient to deal with it and so what you're seeing is is there's a great reduction in the spaces that people can access publicly in our community um and and it's an atrocity um, it really is that people can't go somewhere because we've reasoned that they're too difficult to deal with. And so when you think about it in the context of winter, I mean, if the, somebody's been told you're banned from the public library, you're banned from the Cornwall Center, you're banned from being in this business, you're banned from being in that business, uh, they're either going to be at Carmichael Outreach, um, warming up in our coffee room, having a cup of coffee, or where? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is one of those things where literally it's just, you know, like we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself this on a day-to-day basis. So it certainly isn't coming from a place of saying, you know, poo-poo to people in community, but like, is my personal convenience worth more than someone's life? 
Um, and if the answer to that question is yes, that's really troubling mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. Um, so, you know, then it motivates me to kind of go back and, and reevaluate and say, you know, where do I need to get over myself a little bit here and recognize that I need to not, not be so self-consumed uh, that I would, I would shut the door to somebody's survival uh, or to them having an opportunity to experience something simply because, um, you know, you might have a, a, an experience where somebody's addictions in your face or somebody's mental illness flares up or they just become inconvenient because I don't understand homelessness. And so I'm afraid of people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, we have to do better than that. We have to be better than that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I'm just, like I said, thinking about uh, winter and it's very severe. Um, just think, <laughs> you know, if you can imagine yourself maybe being stranded in your car. Yeah. You know, and uh, now what? Uh Maybe run out of gas or, or something like that. Your yep. car's decided to, to quit on you and you're perhaps in a bit of an isolated area and it's cold. Sure. So now what? You need help. Yeah. For sure. And the strange thing is that's the kind of situation that some of these people find in the middle of our city. Mm-hmm. They got nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. They're freezing cold, probably haven't had much to eat. Mm-hmm. Like say, now what? Yeah. I mean, it, it is a bit of a rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the answer is kind of point blank. I mean, if the resources aren't there, then now what is try to survive? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, those are experiences that we have throughout the winter. People come in and ask you for a sleeping bag or yeah. see somebody carrying around a tent and you just go, I mean, good grief, you know, yeah. like, uh, like I said, I, that to me is one of those things where I just look at it and I just think it, it it's part of that, that narrative. So, I mean, the answer where now what, uh, hope mm. they make it one day to the next sure. and that's where a lot of people are at in in winter in winter times is trying to desperately to find somewhere to lay their head at night mm-hmm. but you look at the ability that people have to survive and everything about that to me screams that people want better for their lives absolutely uh yeah. you know when somebody's somebody is willing to make it through us if you make it through minus 40 for three months in a saskatchewan winter you are infinitely more resilient oh. than i am your empowerment isn't what's in question it's opportunity that needs to be yeah. provided yeah, and and you can kind of understand the guy who will throw a brick through a window so that he can go to jail and he'll at least be warm and get three square meals. You know, I actually have had that conversation um, with people. I remember the first year I was in housing support, it was one of those moments that changes your life, changes your understanding of what things are like for people in your community. And we were talking with a guy and we're working on budget and we're trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to, you know, find rental accommodation? And I remember the conversation. I said, well, what's the plan here? You know, like we're two months down the road. You're just trying to help kind of think long term. You know, like where do you want to be? Where do you see yourself? And, uh, you know, the response I got was basically, hopefully I find a place here in the next month because if I don't, I know what I need to do. And I was like, well, what's that? And the answer was essentially go and do something that gets me in the correctional center for six months because at least I'll, exactly what you said, have, have food to eat and I'll have a roof over my head and I'll be warm. And you just look at that and you just think like, so what's going to happen for that person is they're going to go and they're going to commit a crime and they're going to have a criminal record, but they're doing it to survive. And so what what's happened for some people in our scenario is is there's a scenario that's been created where survival is actually criminalized. Um, and, and now it validates this narrative of, you know, well, it's nothing but troublemakers if they just straighten their life out. And it's like the fact that they can't straighten their life out is the reason that they're choosing criminality. The fact that they, by straighten their life out, I mean that there isn't an opportunity mm-hmm. for a better alternative. There really isn't choice that's available. Autonomy is not really that much of a thing. Like if you say to somebody, you have, you have the choice, the cho- if the choice is to die or to get arrested so that you don't die, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. then, then the 
choice is very inhumane um, and, and isn't really that much of a choice at all. It is about choices, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. And choices that we all have to make. Yep. All our listeners. And I think what we have to choose to do is to become engaged and mm-hmm. to become knowledgeable mm-hmm. and uh, take some action, mm-hmm. like talk to our elected members of uh, the legislature, mm-hmm. parliament, mm-hmm. city council, the mayor, <laughs> you know, yeah. all our leaders. Yeah. And uh, tell them that it's an important issue for us. Yeah. We can demand better for sure. Yeah. Well, Tyler, thanks very much for uh, being here. We've got to the end of the hour here. Thanks for having me. Doesn't uh, it's not hard to talk? Uh, well, it, we don't run <laughs> we don't run out of topics at all, do we? It's, uh, That's true. But uh, it's got to be very fulfilling for you to to do the things you do, uh, but at the same time, probably frustrating because you don't have the resources that you really should have. It's a great privilege for us to do the work that we do, and uh, far more frustrating for the people who are living those experiences every day than it is for me, for sure. As we close this week's Human Rights Radio on CJTR, CJTR Community Radio, we hope you've enjoyed listening to and have learned something new about human rights for all people. Pioneering human rights campaigner Peter Benenson often said, it's better to light a candle of hope than to curse the darkness.